The problem we'd sort of previously outlined is not that people will not produce or garden, and particularly those in the city, and the problem of urban people is not often that they're not willing to be involved in helping with food production is that they have no opportunity to do so. So uh, we're about to outline a series of uh, operational strategies, ones that already work, to access land for people. This involves both rural and urban people in many instances. Therefore it, it has a bearing on people on farm as well as those in city. The most simple strategy running is the one run by Oxfam in Britain, where they are not only concerned with hunger in the absolute sense overseas, but also hunger within the cities of England. And 24% of Americans, that's a very large proportion of the total American population, are actually hungry in this year. Officially 18%, actually 24%. There are, as you know, a lot of hungry people in the cities. This is a simpler strategy to run. The people who can't access land are renting in high-rise or to some extent transient within the city. And the first two strategies are concerned with those people. Here you have two lists. Uh, one, uh, people with surplus land within the city or land they will pledge to Oxfam, and the second list is people who want to garden. To be practical, and particularly for poor people, the land uh, pledged has to be uh, within an economic distance of their home. The ones who pledge land to Oxfam in England are mainly elderly people who have had gardens running, but who can no longer maintain the garden. The secondary benefit is that the findings from several surveys show that these elderly people's main concern is that they cannot keep their gardens in order. It's more concern than animals or age itself. They don't like to see their gardens going out of order. They uh, come in and put up their name and address, a rough measurement of the land and its location. As these people come in looking for land, they scan the lists and put their names down to show they want land and also gives their address where they're living. And slowly, uh, people are matched up with little blocks of land in the city that people, other people don't want. Sometimes landlords uh, will pledge gardens to see them in food production and kept in order. It is strictly an allotment system. The pledges of land are for gardens, for food production. It's not uh, set up for flower gardens or for lawns, although you can put some flowers in your allotment. People need about an eighth, an eighth acre, or alternatively, you know, a thousand square feet is quite good. The only cost to that, in a sense, is the lists. Also, once the two people have been introduced and they've come to some arrangement, that arrangement should be recorded by the land access group so that everybody knows that the agreement is registered somewhere and that the terms of the agreement are specified. 
And they can be as simple as that uh, the people without land have the right to garden there and do what they like with the product and pay nothing, or that they have a right to garden there and they pay an annual rental of $10, or that they have a right to garden there and that they pay a tithe of the garden product, a tenth of the product, to the elderly people in the house. Some friendly and really inexpensive arrangement. This has resulted throughout England in a tremendous number of people being able to access inner city land. This can go along with a, a de-lawning push and you can point out to people that if there are people who are hungry in the city and they are maintaining large lawns, that this is scarcely either a moral or even a, uh, a safe or, or sane social strategy, that the, some should be ma maintaining an acre of lawn while others are actually hungry is a pretty immoral situation. So you ask people to pledge a thousand square feet of their lawn to a, a young couple or an Aboriginal group or any group who are really hungry. It's a quiet, uh, downgrade strategy and it can be put through the city. As long as it is put somewhere where people can normally get to the lists. There are still, uh, by fairly recent estimate, 90,000 applicants for allotments officially in Britain who can't obtain them. But that's again a huge underestimate because most people don't bother to apply for allotments with such a huge backlog of land. And at the same time, the rest of the society maintaining, on average, 6,000 square feet of lawn, something like that. So that's pretty crazy. The second one is very effective. We call it land link or farm link, but it's in the nature, uh, legal nature of a producer-consumer cooperative. Again, initially, there is no uh, money change hands. The register you need here are some small farmers and some neighbourhood families. And uh, I think in Australia, you'd better say about 30 uh, families in a neighbourhood. In uh, poorer countries, 18 families are sufficient to set up a family. What you do is you contact some hippies <coughs> around the city who are hanging out on land, uh, who can't make a living on it pulling down the dole and, and piddling around as usual and what you do is you say to them look will you get an acre of this land into production one acre with an assured market and you may be able to arrange uh, some finance for them we'll get into that later to get an acre underway the 20 families and that individual farmer then set up a relationship so you've got a sort of a a 21 family relationship, the farm family and 20 urban families in any neighbourhood. I would say in a single high rise you would have about four to six farm links running out of one high rise and uh, it should be well displayed within the high rise and well advertised in the press and, and, and radio that, that you're setting up because both those things are true all around Sydney in the area that I was not so long ago there are small farmers without an economic base. They're in a competitive market for a larger type of product. Within Sydney, there are a great many poor families still putting out their 4,000 a year for food because they can't avoid it, who can't uh, get food uh, of good quality or get food uh, organically produced or who can't get food 
at a, at a wholesale or near wholesale rate. But 30 families are a very large income for a farmer, the food for 30 families. That is, it's a sort of forty dollars to $50,000 a year income off an acre. And many farmers would be very grateful for such a farmlink. The farmlink system is set up as a friendship society. It's not set up as an economic society. And it's set up with its rules uh, stressing a closer social relationship between members of the neighbourhood and between them and the farmer. And the 18 rules of the society of the producer-consumer cooperatives are really stressed not at the economic benefits gained but at the social benefits gained. So uh, you look first towards the social organisation of such groups. They should meet and discuss what their needs are with the farmer sitting in and farmers should say what they can do what products they know they can handle and how much of the food consumed by these families they can get on deck. They should arrange uh, places where the food is dropped off in town, usually at one of the homes or at a fixed place. They, the neighbourhood group have to arrange the distribution of the food amongst them and the payment of the farmer as the food is dropped off. Even with relatively poor people, they can often pre-fund the farmer into a new crop or a new product. If the farmer's not now growing poultry, they can put in poultry and start supplying eggs. If they are not now growing a patch of wheat, they can grow wheat. It takes four or five years for the farmer to start to be the major food supplier to a small urban group because it takes that long to really get into running a diverse system for up to 70 or 80 people. It's a good idea to concentrate on some good staple food and to very carefully work out the food balance. One of the important things to set up in a farm link is the schedule for the year so that everybody knows when a particular crop will be harvested and when they have to be prepared to perhaps preserve or freeze it or to store it properly. It's no good bringing potatoes in and throwing them like a housewife will into a netting bag on the corner of the sink. They, if you bring your year's potatoes in, they have to go into paper-lined dark boxes to be there for 12 months in good condition. All this has to be made ready because many city people don't have any idea of taking in a crop like onions or potatoes which always come in for the full year. You pull your onions in February and you have those onions until the following February. And a lot of people in the city don't know how to keep those seeds. So all this has to be worked out uh, with the group meetings. The whole thing is greatly assisted by food processing centres. That's an excellent combination. A set of farm link groups in a neighbourhood who jointly belong to a food processing cooperative so that they can can off or freeze or salt or ferment products for a year's life or make jam or whatever. Bill, is this operation be non-residential except for the farmer? The farmer owns the land and runs the farm and contracts to supply the food. If 
a good relationship, friendship relationship develops. Quite possible for neighbourhood group to supply labour at critical periods, to do additional market work for surplus on behalf of the farmer, that is to sell off to other people not in a farm link any, any surplus of crop, to one of the very useful services is to give the farmer an urban base, somewhere to stay in town, and also to give, give him a purchasing group for spare parts, somebody who can run around town, look for things and get them on a bus to him. So there's a service possibility. In exchange, the farmer can set up a few tenting areas or somewhere where people can stay when they want to go for a holiday, because many people in town don't have the financial ability to go for a holiday and pay for accommodation. And we're looking basically here at groups who aren't well off. Yeah, your farmer might have to start by supplying, you know, a tenth or a, a twentieth or a thirtieth or something of the total food because that's all the farmer can fund and manage and that's all the people can handle. As soon as that is done, you can halve these people's food bills, but the quality of food can be much higher. As soon as that is done, you do have surplus capital. By the third or fifth year, you, you should have installed almost everything you want, including glass houses and God knows what. The farmer is now getting a very good income and the people are saving a lot of money. And they might enter into a joint venture situation where they decide to put up more glass houses and even perhaps some of the town people might decide to say, OK, well, we'll run a couple of those glass houses. Who knows? But you stress the friendship relationship. These work very widely throughout several societies. Uh, Japan and America run quite a lot of them. Japan, they're uh, an expanding phenomenon. Now, nobody has any worries anymore. The farmer doesn't worry about market. Town people don't worry about where their reasonably cheap food's coming from and so on. Between the group in town, there may be some prepared to assist others a little more. Your farmer should do a little better than wholesale and still give people their food at 50% cheaper because I don't know if you know any of the price differentials, but they're usually not as generous as that. We're lucky to get 30% for our product of the market price. So if the farmer got 40% of the market price for his product, he'd be as happy as a pig in shit because he's making a quarter more income per unit crop than he was before. The people in town are saving 60% of the retail. It's obvious that within 12 months, as soon as crop comes off farm, you have a, a large amount of spare capital that wasn't in the situation before. This can develop into a social and holiday situation to, to a very large extent. It has to be done by gradualism. Did you, you get much sort of opposition? You can make an oppose their heads off. This is a totally legal situation and it can be put in a situation of these people leasing crop and futures from a farmer or leasing a flock of poultry. A farmer can lease 10 half-acre blocks to 10 adults on which they can run a poultry flock of 30 chickens. 300 chickens are more than enough to supply 30 families. So only 10 of them are chicken house leases. The farmer then 
contracting to feed and collect the, the flock owned by the urban family. One farmer here leases, uh, doesn't own any cows, he milks 90. And the people who own the cows are town people. And he contracts to milk. They lease his land, they own the cows, and he contracts to milk and sells the milk, whole milk. They're only buying their own milk. Ah, oh, they're not buying it. Of course, they're only paying a man to milk their cow, which any of us are legally entitled to do. I would say without exception that every housing commission area ever built has a real food problem. It had it uh, at least 10 years ago. It's now an extreme food problem. Jovanovic, who was here with the bus, just left, could possibly tell you. His wife works as a lawyer in the housing commission areas. Several of my students work there as counsellors and lawyers. And we find that most of those families don't have enough food. I mean, most of the families don't have enough food. And you have, you're looking at a, a complex problem. Their backyards are certainly big enough to feed them. They don't have a land problem. They have a, a severe, uh, according to the medical profession, they have a severe qualude deficiency, or a, what's that other drug they feed them on? They have a severe Valium deficiency, so the medical people load them up with Valium. Most of them are zombies. They don't have uh, intestinal fortitude left. I mean, they're battered people. That's a big problem. They're, yes, but the result is uh, basic starvation. A land link system works to take the responsibility of, taking, of making food off those people who can't get that act together. They have four kids, no husband at home. Whole neighbourhoods starting at Burnie for some blocks don't have a single resident male. They are all female, single mother, multiple mother neighbourhoods. Canberra always had slums from its foundation. The first slums in Canberra, they were very bad ones, were those in the construction houses left over around the old American embassy, and they've never ceased to have a depressed class of people. Canberra keeps on bringing in slave groups. The, the most deprived immigration groups come into Canberra as housemates and uh, busboys, and they keep ignoring, they keep shoving them into hostels. In Canberra, the female ratio is, I think, four to one, females to males. In the Land link, the farm link, better called, uh, just for a short name, in the producer-consumer cooperative, what arrangements these group come to are beaten out by the groups, and they are always different, and always with different uh, degrees of involvement. The aim is to build up an increasing number of functional exchanges, uh, urban to rural. So you might start with. Uh, provision of a few food items and go on to planning a year as groups so you're all interested in the planning and then you might go further than that to decide to pool some of the capital saved in a common fund for further 
development of the food and, and distribution and processing system, whatever uh, the group sees the need to be. You can go on to the farmer laying out when he thinks he will want help on weekends. And then uh, you can migrate past that to when the town people ask, you know, for some residential access to the farm and on you can go. It could end up that the farmer uh, basically has a lot of the land leased to the group for uh, recreational or other purposes. It's not usual in Australia for our small farms to be all that small. They're usually at least 12 acres. But that's one of the largest farms you can find in Japan, 12 acres. Whereas very often you've got a hippie sitting not far out of Sydney on 100 or 200 acres, which means that they can lease the town group 10 acres to develop for themselves as a recreational or holiday centre. It allows mobility in the, in the urban group, but it's the urban group's job to keep a basic number of families in the group. It may not be that we do find a lot of demand. It may be we do. Oxfam has. This is now getting huge throughout the United States and Japan. Maybe we'd better know about the strategies for when they're desperately needed, but I believe them to be desperately needed. Now, it's one thing for you to put a column in Maggie's Farm or the local green rag. It's another thing for you to go in to a social worker in a slum and say, look, I will grow food at half the price these people can buy it on my farm and bring it here. You know, it's, I don't think anybody or any of those women on Valium with three kids are reading your paper. You've probably got uh, to call in uh, the adult education groups and run, we had to do that with Aboriginal people. We got this stuff growing all right and when this, all this stuff came up, they didn't know what to do with it. They'd never seen it. They'd never seen a globe artichoke or a Jerusalem artichoke. They didn't know how you ate it. Uh, so it, they sort of walked amongst it like it was some curious new forest. <laughs> uh, oranges, on the other hand, uh, as anybody who knows, Aborigines will tell you, they pulled off the tree and ate skin and all. They always do. They never peel an orange. They just chomp their way straight through it. But they're just as likely to break the whole branch off, not through any sense of being damaging, but because that's the way they might gather, that you break off a branch as you walk along and then take your oranges off and eat them. Uh, yeah, and that actually happens. They come along to the orange tree and break a branch off, pick off the oranges and go on eating them. Not because they're out to kill the orange tree, but because that is the normality of gathering. Now, you've got to put in classes in a suburb when a crop comes in, show, look, here are the 25 ways you actually treat a fresh potato. This is a fresh potato. It doesn't have any 2,4-D on to stop it sprouting, and it will keep 12 months in perfect condition. This is how you keep it. This is how you cook it. I'm not saying that getting food to deprived people is the simplest thing in the world. I'm not saying you have overnight success at it. A whole group of people who are better off 
but not well off, larger families who wish they could get onto the land with children, but who can't afford the price of farms, let alone the <coughs> price of location to a farm, leaving a job behind, are very well served by the farm club. This is a straight out club, like a pigeon club or a football club. It has a, a deposit or joining fee and it has an annual fee. And the joining fee is, or deposit is non-returnable over some period of three to five years. Now depending on the group who become involved here, and it's usually lower middle to upper middle class groups, you adjust by agreement what the deposit and what the annual fee will be. But it's be very reasonable, for instance, even for a relatively poor group to pay $500 deposit and $100 a year. Your membership, there's no trouble running 200 members and that would be about uh, an ideal number. You can run on many less. If you ran on 100 members <coughs> with a $500 deposit, you're looking at $50,000. At $100 a year, you're looking at $10,000 annually. What does that enable you to do? It enables you to make a purchase on a very reasonable property and to have 10000 a year capital to develop the property. The farm club has the property planned and designed and the design is, is, is publicised amongst club members and it's usually a complex design. The design is basically for three reasons. Now this urban group own this farm by membership and they can come and go, except they can't get their $500 back straight away if they do come and go, until a replacement member buys in. The property plans for farm clubs properly include uh, as much water as you can get on farm, as much fishery as you can fit into that water, uh, forest and arable areas and complex accommodation which may be a single large accommodation unit like a motel unit or which may be very modest accommodation in terms of tenting areas around a central toilet and shower and laundry facility as such the sort of thing you get at a caravan park or camp park. You have to take the whole thing in steps, you have to get permission to set up a tenting area, that's not difficult on any farm. If you have proper toilets and showers and uh, fireplaces, uh, tenting space is legal on any farm because it's not a constant occupancy, then it's often not difficult to, buy, uh, to build a large or complex building as long as one building. Now that's at your lowest level and this farm is likely to be broken up if if this is, and I think those figures for Australia would be, you know, very modest figures for even working class family to get their own farm access, uh, this wouldn't pay a manager on a farm and it would buy a modest amount of land and put modest developments in and it's often the labour of the members of the club which uh, develop the area. Let's look at what a middle class family could afford and you change that to 3000 
and probably 200 a year. So you're looking at uh, six, uh, now get help me for God's sake, $300,000 plus 20000 20, a year. Now you've, you've reached uh, a very satisfactory limit of developmental capital. You can buy a very large property of multiple use and you can uh, keep a manager on the property full time and uh, a rural manager wouldn't ask for any more than 12000 a year, a competent, ordinary person. And that would give him uh, fifteen or 16000 a year to put in on, on the place in development. And that's a different proposition. At that point, you can really start to develop a high production systems on farm with a resident person. So your farm club people can get a reasonable amount of, for instance, meat and, and bulk product, meat and wheat or meat and potatoes off farm. They, can, they still can develop their recreational areas and uh, these are very popular with Australians. So you can't argue that these don't work. For the average family wanting out, this sort of investment, uh, which is resellable, is very modest and gives them plenty of access to land and probably all that they ever wanted anyhow. They really didn't want to put out the 300,000 themselves to buy a bit of property and they didn't want to go live in the bush and give up their job because they couldn't see what they would do. But however, they've got the benefits uh, of having a place that they can live on. Now, if you spend 200000 on the land, you get uh, good land for that, sometimes extensive land. And it gives you a lot of games to play in design. How can they sell it, uh, you sell club, well, your club membership is, is just that. If somebody moves out, you've got to hold this for a while. That's understood in the rules of the club. But if somebody applies for club membership, they buy it and you get your money back. Well, these are popular. Um, curiously enough, the thing that people develop out on farms are really things like motels. They just drive out of the city, dive into a cabin or a motel, and uh, they always have some recreational facility out there so that uh, families can disperse over the area and find something to do. Fish, play mini golf, go float around on a pond. But the manager, meanwhile, keeps the farm running as a farm. This, uh, allow this you know, in design, this allows you to do a tremendous number of things Again, increasingly involving club members in, in farm activities. A reason why, if this situation develops, many of those people who want to actually go live on the land can get there because you have the capital to develop livings. We're not talking about the same mixed food system as FarmLink. You're talking about supplementing food on bulk product, not in a real mixed system you would be looking at providing, say, sheep, fish, grains, potatoes. That's very reasonable for a manager to do because they're all bulk crop. Up to the designer. Up to the club members too. 
and depends on who sets up the farm club. If you leave it to, uh, what shall I say, the ordinary land entrepreneur, I think your worst dreams would be fulfilled. But if you leave it to a responsible group to set up the club and lay out the club, help the club lay out the land and also help the club lay out its rules and draw up pro formas for other groups, guidelines, people like yourself, for instance, who are highly, highly socially responsible people, I imagine it would work out very well. It would work out just as well in Britain or Germany as it does in Australia. So your farm club situation is... Uh, in, in, these are very common in the lowlands where they are called garden clubs because the land purchased is small, often only 12 acres. It's on a main route and it is broken up for the main part into small weekend gardens for the club members. And uh, the difference between Australia and Europe, and I don't think we should let it remain a difference, is that throughout Europe, with the exception of Britain, it's totally legal they've made it legal for you to put any sort of small accommodation on those plots and to reside there for no more than two days a week. And so I showed you that photograph of the Schrober Gardens. People put caravans on there, they put tiny little huts on there, they put complex tents on there, and uh, they live there over the weekends and the whole damn family goes out to the farm and farms all weekend they keep tools out there. They have, uh, of course, proper toilets and showers. Is there a working model that you know of in Australia? No, not of a garden club, unless you know of one. The garden club idea is stymied in Australia because, as yet, and I don't think this is going to last long, and particularly it's not going to last long as this society also winds down. Forget Bob Hawke, you're not going to ever see full employment. We're going to have to legalise the right for people to spend some time on land from which they can make money. And that means we're going to have to legalise overnight accommodation in rural areas, at least overnight accommodation. Now, it is legal already if you organise it this way. And here are two farms that do it. One is Tim Cox's at Yandoit, and one is another one I went to, I was designing on outside Melbourne. I've forgotten the owner's name. The owner can get permission to put up overnight cabins and to lease them to town people and they have to be built according to specification. But they can be very, very minute things. I think it has to be given, the people in farm clubs have to be given the right to do the same thing. Farm owners already do it. So there are sort of, I guess, levels in here from the garden club up to the fully recreational farm club complete with golf courses and, and uh, thoroughbred riding tracks up through the forests. And the ones off and running in Australia are actually starting here at 15 and 5,000, which is still not beyond an upper middle class person who would really like to have a lot of access, free access to land in which they're a co-owner. Well, when you're looking at 15 and 5,000, you can... Uh, you can tune the land up pretty well. 
Actually, the more sloppy you make it at the moment, mate, the more more fun to get. It doesn't say they don't want to come home and have Mercedes Benz with their bloody sack of potatoes. Nobody's nobody said they didn't want to. They didn't want to come home with their fifty pound sack of whole ground flour. Whole whole flour. Because they're very these, the people who are starting to pay this are starting to become concerned with immortality because they know they can't take it with them, so they want to stay forever. Yeah, it's very trendy to have all these things now. Also, it's extremely cheap. You know, at 15 and 2,000, you could actually be making money from being a member, a member of such a club. You could offset it completely with farm product because you can really... You can put all the glass houses and two or three sub-managers in under a manager. And, of course, it can be tax-deductible uh, to the club. OK, well, we're coming up from the really modest, no capital needed areas, right, to a whole sequence of stepped club or association developments, all of which are really cheap, and they're cheap for your particular social class, you can lay out and define, together with a reasonable lawyer and a, a real estate person, ways that urban people can take part in developing land. They can do it as a development <clears throat> which they intend to sell. One of the most successful land development gambits going, one which hasn't ceased to work in the United States, is to develop an area uh, for complex recreation and divide it up for residential surroundings. A totally different concept from that which, say, a housing commission or a, a current land development takes. In effect, what you're saying is, that's the area and you develop most of it for people and break it up for housing only as incidental to the central development, which may involve a lot of water, a lot of forest, a lot of walking trails, uh, recreational areas, and then you sell the residences which have that land in common. So this is a common and this is residence. And these sell very well. In fact, they sell like hot cakes. Now, w what is this development? What is this common? And of course, who are you trying to sell to? The ones that you can sell off at sort of a quarter million dollars a block around here? This common is a very high class uh, recreational unit comprising a golf course designed by the top designers and on and on, right? A quarter million dollars a block. When I was looking at in California, the net profit expected from a relatively small 100-acre development is $36 million. Or is it a gr the group of people who are trying to sell it to, a group of people whose concern really is clean water and security of their own food, which is integral with their house? Or is it a group of people who would like to reduce living costs 
by having their own energy system and food available on site, giving one of them the right to work the food for some of them so that you have all of this design into the situation. What is sold is the individual blocks. What is not sold is the common ownership and rights uh, over the golf course. It just belongs to the titles. Anyone living in the house has a right of access to the golf course. Anyone living in the house has a right of access to food production and to a share of the energy uh, centre. The actual cost of providing a house with energy in a group situation in the United States at present is about $800. That is, providing you can group people around a central wind farm or solar pond, the cost per house unit is very, very low. Providing you design to provide total energy from a central energy system. If you're lucky enough, and it's not luck at all because you're going looking for expensive property, to find a property with uh, falling water and a hydroelectric potential, uh, then you buy it specifically because what you're doing is providing each house with hydroelectric energy and that's probably one of the most satisfactory things. In some of the groups, one of the people can actually have uh, the responsibility for maintaining and retailing energy and keeping it uh, running through the population. Now it's really a part-time job, but as only 40 adults in the United States, I'm just talking about adults, use $50,000 worth of energy annually, a development in which you're looking at maybe 200 adults very comfortably supports one adult as energy officer. That is, one household could uh, have an income of $30,000 just supplying uh, the households with their energy making sure the wires, insulators, machinery and in fact the insulation and, and uh, goods in the house are in order. <clears throat> now <clears throat> there are two ways to develop this. One is to develop it uh, to be sold and the other one is to develop it to a group of people who want to get out and make a living when they're out and so you develop it as a common work. And what is for sale is a house now with its energy and its living or its income attached. Now the livings are either land or process or service related. And the processing centre is built in. There is a development very like this at Axdale in Victoria, planned and, and carried out by staff of one of the colleges there. It's water, uh, a lot of its energy, and a lot of its livings and the site for those livings, that is the workshop site for processing or for mechanical engineers to work, uh, are all there as part of the deal. You get access to your workshops and machinery sheds and so on, all as part of the subdivision. Uh, it's at Axdale. If you want to find out about it and how it's going, I think it's just about completed. Yeah, you can find out through Niagara Lane, right? 15 Niagara Lane. Well, I first got involved in that about uh, six years ago. Uh, what happened was a group from the Bendigo CIE of teachers and also uh, people who were economists and had thought out ways of investing in land started to buy land and break it up as standard subdivisions 
and made uh, quite a packet out of it so that the staff of the CAE uh, lent their design and, and architectural skills to this sort of deal and they made a lot of money individually. When they had some money in hand they got more and more dissatisfied with this idea of dividing up land and the next block of land they bought next door they called me in soon after they purchased and said look what can we really do here and we laid it out more or less as a self-reliant village design and then the trouble started uh, in getting the authorities to uh, pass all the things that they wanted to do their own sewage disposal was a problem they had a, a, a bit of a problem getting hold of their water allotment next door you could get uh, vast quantities to irrigate a crop of lucerne when it came to actually providing people with clean water they had a problem I think they overcame that. They had to take the water authorities to court several times. On it went, on it went. But I think it has now gone ahead and developed. There's a few little bits on it in some of the old quarterlies too. But this is uh, coming close to this idea and also ho hovering somewhere in between this. The difference across here is if a larger proportion of people in the developmental group want to actually live on the land and it does, you can sell some residential units to a common work but in this case you're simply in there to develop it and sell it off as people want it and you can pre-sell it if you can sell that developmental idea you probably have most of your blocks sold before you ever start and that means you have the capital to develop it without ever having capital What's the difference between a limited liability company and a... Well, it's this. The members of the limited liability company are simply developers. They go in, this is a sort of risk capital situation, they go in to develop one of these situations and they actually go in and develop it. They have capital, they develop it, and then they sell it. Sell it to a trust? They sell it to anyone who comes in off the street who wants to live in this sort of situation. And they would have assessed, and they would have accurately assessed, that if you went into Sydney or Melbourne and talked to the average middle class person with a family, let's say, well, do you want to live in here? No, but there's no real alternative. I can't afford to get out. I can't leave my job. And I said, look, what if we offer you a house which has its own energy supply and its own food guaranteed, and that there's a very high likelihood that you can obtain work right where you are you know or if they have developed that and say well we can offer you workshop space or a teaching position in this community or whatever it is that the people want to do then the people can get out of town and for the price of their modest East Brighton home uh, get out get their energy their food and their living in the country and that's been done by a, a specific form of development. I mean, you sell out in East Brighton at $150,000, and that would be excessive capital to move into one of these where your need to earn is very slight. Well, you don't have to earn uh, 20,000 years just to keep running in the rat cage. A common work model, the members of this group intend to occupy the land, and they then specifically design it for their own ends. That is, it's the residents or the future residents who undertake the design. That's the only difference. This probably 
would have a few more small uh, glamorous things put into it because you've got to sell it on the open market. In this case, people are actually saying, look, what I really want to do is make my living by providing uh, some of the food and some of the energy to the other people or by taking over leasing arrangements for the equipment, leasing and maintenance arrangements for heavy equipment and vehicles. That's what I'm good at and that's what I want to do. So what you're setting up is a village with its interdependency built in. This gets people out okay, and if you do what they did at the Village Homes Project in Davis, at some uh, not grouped and fairly random interval, <coughs> you put up more modest accommodation which is expandable, and you sell it at much more modest prices just as part of your development. What you're actually doing is accommodating people in society who really couldn't afford uh, you know, to do this normally. If it wasn't, if you couldn't write off some of this development against uh, accommodating low-income groups. Now, the value of bringing them in has, is greatly underestimated. What it has proved in village homes is that if you bring in a large quota of Mexican labourers, which they did, they brought in, they, they got good solar homes. Now, have a guess as to who is really providing most of the services to the rest of the people. It's not, it's not the upper middle class families. It's these uh, poorer people. They are the people who developed the community garden uh, to a really fine point. So much so that one of the industries they generated within a suburban context is a manufacturing sale of tacos from excess corn product. <laughs> you know, quite a, a booming little trade. You know, they're the people who are going to get small cafeterias running. They're the people who are going to uh, really be good at mending cars because that's all they've ever done. They haven't ever had a new car. They've had to learn how to uh, get along and fix things up. They've got a high degree of, of inbuilt self-reliance from when they were tiny. Therefore, I think it's uh, not only socially responsible, but um, in terms of the whole settlement, uh, a very great asset to bring in uh, low-income families. And of course, they soon even out in income, but their useful function remains. They're of much more value uh, than, say, bringing in uh, a professional psychologist or somebody. Well, they'd have a big influence on the children, because they, they, then the kids of the other people who wouldn't have learned any sort of life tend to learn a bit of a part mixing with the other people. Yeah, I think it has a very beneficial influence, and I, and I think that everybody in village homes would agree <coughs> that that's the case. The Mexican. The houses were sold relatively cheaper and, and they're extendable and most of them extended them. That is, they're sold as two-bedroom units fairly cheap. If the going price of these things around here in Australian terms is $90,000 with its home, right? The going price of this is sort of $35,000 on better terms, right? On a better term than this. This, this, this maybe is a 10-year payoff, whereas this is a 30-year payoff. And, and maybe, but what you're looking at isn't 
that you've lost money here at all you haven't. You haven't maximised income, but what you've actually done is you've made money on the total development, and plenty of money. But what you've built in is an opportunity to accommodate parts of society not usually involved in sane developmental systems, usually jammed into housing commission ghettos with all that that means in terms of health. And these families are obviously healthier, happier, and so is everybody involved. It's a, a single development within, a, within the outskirts of the city of Davis, yeah. Village Homes is the name of that development. It's about completed, and I think it had uh, 20 homes to go when, when, when I'd taken those slides. What was the size of that development? Gosh, it was, uh, it was a fairly dense uh, 60 acres uh, of urban thing with, with large garden spaces left because the houses were closer than usual. So I don't know how many people got on there. Most of the roads are blind roads, they don't go anywhere, they just serve one row of houses. So there's no traffic noises. It's almost a uh, mecca. There's always uh, maybe... I mean, I go there every time in the States. I just go there to walk in it. <laughs> you know, just that feeling of sanity for once in your life in a suburb. And to see the people in it, it's great. To see how people behave in a, in a properly designed situation. But I want to point out the naivety is no good that what you did when you did village homes, you cut out most of the income to commercial interests. You didn't use the concrete pipes. You know, you'd, you had the whole, uh, all the civil engineering was cut out except in original design of Swaley. Um, there's no maintenance on waterworks and things, you know, so... Uh, and there's, there's not much energy going in, so you're a central... And a lot of Americans invest in public utilities and there's no, um, there's no hydroelectric or state electricity commissions in the United States. It's all provided by private companies. None of it is provided by the state. Uh, village Homes is a very low energy user. It's uh, obviously not trucking to the supermarket locally. There's, you'd be very naive to think that the members of a city council would jump with joy to see an example like Village Homes because who are the members of your Shire Council? Who's a member of your Shire Council? <laughs> same round here. And they are extremely right wing. And for instance, the same cocky is a member of the council, runs a butcher shop, has actually threatens other people, uh, I mean physically, if they attempt to start any other meat service. Yeah, he's got a big property up on the Gold Coast. He's not really interested in seeing a self-reliant development in Stanley or is any of the council members. But no one, you know, a whole lot of alternative people and no one stood. And they would have got voted in if they had. Yeah. Why don't the alternative people stand for council? Well, why, haven't they, why haven't they stood even when their numbers are great enough to get people in? They're as busy as hell and there's no pay for the job and it's very time consuming and it can only normally be held down by business proxies and not necessarily the business, uh, for instance, Charles Davis in Hobart, which is a huge retail store, I think taken over now by Homes and Court, always has a member on the Hobart City Council of their staff. They, I mean, the directors are too busy, but they always have a, a staff member whose livelihood depends on the goodwill of the people putting him in. Um, 
land developers always have a proxy on the council, somebody they pay to get on the council. I think there's very good reasons not to be too naive and also to disabuse yourself of this notion that if you set up a good example, people will follow it. That's simply untrue. It has proved to be untrue in almost every case where it has been done. And what you've actually got to set up is a developmental group who go on doing what Village Homes is. That you actually, you have to outcompete in open marketplace those people who are building worse developments. And that's what Mike Corbett is doing at Village Homes. He's going again. And this time, he's practically pre-sold his next development. So if he is doing well at that and other people are not doing so well because what he offers is so much better and what he can point to is so much better, then individual citizens make the choice with their purses and on their feet. Now, but if you sit in the middle, and this has been proved so many times, it's ridiculous. If you... If I go and make a really good job of the swamp and it's turning off lots of livings and turning over lots of money and you look at the swamp and you look at the properties around and say, why aren't those people doing that? You're right off your head. You've got to buy the next property and do it and sell it and buy the next property and do it and sell it. You can't wait for a right-wing monopolistic person to change their mind and suddenly become full of love to the land and humanity. They never were, and they're not going to be tomorrow. So buy them out, and they've got to die, you know. I don't give a damn if it takes six generations. You get rid of them. First you get rid of the Van Diemen's Land Company, then you get rid of the local kings, and gradually you can get control. But it may be generational change. It doesn't have to be a generational change, providing you are smart enough to get a financial control. If you're running the bank, you can buy out the people banking in it. The other way to get land access is to get it as a matter of rights. And uh, I think we can do a lot here, and there are no impediments to this. There's no, uh, none of the arguments thrown up about the others that even apply here. However, it needs, uh, it needs to have uh, agreements this is basically, uh, I guess, a sort of a free-fire common work situation where you regard all land as open to rights as it is. One of the common old-style rights in this district that you could obtain was the right to trap rabbits on somebody's property, and you could have the sole right to do that. They were pleased to let you have that right. And, of course, you defended that right as though it was your land. One of the very few murders in the town occurred over the right to put rabbit traps down. So this is not landowner fighting an intruder, it's uh, right owner fighting for their rights on land. You should look at all land as, having, as being open to rights. Now the rights are extremely variable. They range from energy rights, which you can take out, in fact, I don't think any wind farm in the United States is on land owned by the, by the uh, investment group. It's always leased from farmers. There's been an extensive world survey of wind sites, including Australia, carried out by prospectors for American energy companies. And uh, 
I want you to be aware of this, that energy surveys are being carried out by overseas companies throughout Australia. They're looking for small creeks and waterfalls that are freehold. They're looking for abandoned water mills and buying the sites. They're looking at uh, uh, natural topography where you have highly efficient wind systems. There's a beauty. This is what you look for. I found the best one in Australia, I think, in Violet Town. Consists of two great ranges coming up to a saddle. The two great ranges going away from the saddle and the CSIRO would say that configuration will direct winds from any direction to a single point. Therefore, you're not now looking at steerable energy machines. You're looking at wind spinners, which are fixed. If you get that sort of saddle with diverging um, ridges, actually all you do is you put up a walkway and put your wind spinners along the walkway and service your machines right at waist level. You don't have any... Fast, you can put up 20, 30 tiers, tiers of wind spinners. All you do is let the wind blow. Let it, it can blow from north to south, east to west, and it'll come screaming through the gap. Uh, this belongs to a friend of mine. I've pointed the site out to him. But there's never, uh, the stillest day in history, there's a 15 to 20 miles an hour wind coming through that situation for one reason or another, because there's always some of the air mass and movement, and all you need is enough, enough funneling to get a useful wind. Bill, when you talk about rights, do you, you mean rights in common law or rights as loses? Yes, uh, you can come at it several ways legalistically. You can come at, uh, at it with any sort of agreement that you can write with the landowner. <coughs> Some may not actually have any direct payment involved or any leasehold uh, written. They can be actual partnerships for joint ventures, all sorts of things. Now this has a lot, a lot to do with urban and rural people as well as with uh, uh, just general free-floating capital. A very good example of it I think happened at Campbelltown when, when Alice Weiss was there and there was a woman in the district who had been growing herbs but she only had half an acre and the council or somebody was hassling her about being commercial on herbs. But she had a very large demand for uh, aromatic herbs and was making quite a lot of money from it. But she'd run out of land. And although she, she was good at propagating the herbs, she didn't have anywhere to put them. And Alice was there and said, well, you can put them up on my place. And as far as that's <coughs> concerned, there is an agreement. Later on, you work out uh, who picks them if there's any lease agreement or whether, in fact, by putting herbs along roadways and things, you haven't actually benefited the other area to the extent that you've put in bee forages. They are perennial systems and that maybe you wouldn't want them anyhow, that maybe you would like to have it on your land without the fuss of having to do it. And what I've been pointing out to Alice and George Vice in this development near Sydney is, I say to George, who's a furniture salesman really, they've got furniture stores, George, you don't want to be picking black walnuts, George. Can you see yourself with your little grubby hands all stained with brown, you know? And he thinks about it and says, no, I can't, really. I said, well, well let, let the walnuts. Let somebody else pick them. What do you want to do that for? All you want to do is to get the walnuts at 40 years' time and make a fortune out of it, right? 
So you don't want the walnuts at all. You don't want the olives off the olive tree. All you want is a can of olive oil. That'd be nice for you, wouldn't it? So people are very, very well inclined to listen. And that means that periodically, seasonally, on some basis, land is always open to other people to come and make a living. It's not a common work in that sense, because it is in a, in a way, but now you look at rights as being spread over all areas, and we should become pretty cluey about what sorts of livings are laying there right open in front of your eyes. They are uh, insert rights, the right to place within the current structure of farms and even in urban areas the right to insert a crop which is generally beneficial to the whole situation, to run a dispersed crop. Energy rights, which are quite distinct from any land product and may be organised on a proportion of the net profit of the energy paid for in that way. All of these may be organised on a proportion net profit. 10% would be very fair for all, all rights. In fact, on gleaning, I doubt whether even 10% is necessary. Energy rights, I think 10% is reasonable. The group operating the rights or the person operating the rights takes all the risks. The person with the land does nothing, takes no risks. If the energy system comes off, if it pays, if power is being fed into the grid, if people are profiting, then the site pays for itself. You should pay for the site by proportion of the energy sales. I keep going on to properties and pointing out to people that they have an energy system there. They don't have the oomph or capital or skills to develop it. Uh, lots of people do have. And uh, so what you want is urban entrepreneur group and a rural rights system. Now this is much more free form. And as you wander around the country, you can see lots of places where somebody can fit in an entrepreneurial system. And then you go back to town and say, look, you guys, what's the good of sitting here beating your gums and wishing you were uh, making money or that you weren't paying anything for your household energy? What say you can't put up a wind spinner here in, in this district in town? Why don't you generate your energy out of town? reap a net profit and thereby get your energy in town free. Sell the energy into the grid, pay for your energy in your house, but your energy fed into the grid will offset the energy paid to your house. Why don't you contract to build dams, giving the farmer the right to a proportion of the water for irrigation, but reserving all rights to work inside the water. I think many farmers would be very grateful to a group who came in and designed and built dams, providing they could use, you know, 20% of that water. I would be. Um, and then the fishery and all aquatic products, or wildlife even, belongs to the group on the water. The water, or a proportion of the water, belongs to the farmer. That's all the farmer can use. The farmer can't use the fishery. So you want an entrepreneurial group in, in town offering lots of opportunities for urban people to become involved in rights over land. Now, it's obvious that a lot of these rights don't take any capital whatsoever. 
a gleaning right, a proper system of trapping and managing wallaby populations. It takes no capital and has a high return and farmers in this district 10 miles out would actually pay you to reduce the wallaby population. Now, the last barrier we will come up against is do people want to do this or are they really uh, hanging out because they want to hang out? There's a problem. Do you want to work a fortnight a year? In fact, in Wallaby, six weeks work a year, brisk weeks work a year, usually nets about $20,000. It's a hard six weeks. On mutton birds, it's five weeks a year. And that gives you a full, a full and very good income for the year. Capital expenditure, extremely low in gleaning operations. And the farmer knows who you are, he knows what you're doing, he knows you're managing the situation, you're actually offering a management skill, and he may get 10% of net if that's so organised. Actually, when it comes to gleaning pest species, he doesn't want 10% of net, he'd pay you 10% of net to get rid of them because it means increased production. The farmer can't handle the wallabies either. If he does handle them, he handles them by contract to the agriculture department under a poisoning scheme which is quite expensive. So now you've got 70,000 dead wallabies clogging up the streams and if they're 1080 poisoned for many years, even the bones are poisonous to cattle. So you consistently lose cattle uh, from then on. The farmer doesn't want that management system. I know whereof I speak. It's not unusual for the agriculture department, one poisoning in this district they killed 70,000 wallabies by count and we figure we find one third. So uh, I would count it at $15 a wallaby to skin and meat and, and possibly sale for the skulls too. They don't know how to manage the situation. They don't have an entrepreneurial system for, uh, for, for say, arranging the tanning and sale of the skins. China and Russia will take all skins you can produce. Our gleaning rights in the forest out here are $4 a year, I think. Uh, can somebody back me up on that? Uh, what happens is that the loggers go through and take the eucalypts, and only the good eucalypts. They leave all the celery top pine, myrtle and blackwoods, and then they fall them and burn them. And those yields are larger. The yields of the, of the understory species are larger and a climax yield of a 100-year-old forest in Europe, and they're burnt. The other thing that's burnt and bulldozed are the, ma uh, are the ferns, the uh, man ferns, which you have to have a permit to cut in Victoria uh, by the hundreds of thousands. One container of man ferns lands, it costs you $1,500 to send to San Francisco. It contains $80,000 worth of ferns. $80,000 worth. Uh, and you could load one... Uh, every day. All you do is cut off all the fronds and chainsaw off the fern and, and bring it down a container width and stack it in and when they push them in the ground in San Francisco the thing just starts growing again. That's how a man fern operates. Which sort of ferns are these? Uh, our uh, man ferns, Dixonia Antarctica. Why isn't somebody doing it? Not because there aren't good unemployed people who are competent in getting ferns because the same person who's competent in getting the ferns is not competent in ordering the uh, pallet, in shipping, 
in finding who in the hell in San Francisco will pay for the ferns, contacting orchid societies in the United States, all beyond their capacity. You need entrepreneurs, people who know how to ship a market and contact market and to pre-sell at the receiving point. I think until we're finished uh, mopping up the rights around lands in societies, we don't need to buy land or look at any further developments. Uh, uh, on your own land, on the lands of this group, there are so many overlaying rights which you could give away to great benefit to yourself, for someone who wants to operate them, uh, that it would benefit your properties enormously just to have somebody operating the rights. Imagine somebody wanted to come and grow mass herbs if you wanted to be a beekeeper. You know, I mean, these could be rights which are so complementary to the other operation that they really are at no charge. 